All right, so I do also have a couple announcements. I know you are getting announcements just, but here's a couple more, okay? Uh, we are doing a men's study. It's going to resume on September 9th, 7.30 in the barn right out there. It goes from 7.30 to about 8.45, depending on at the end how long you want to pray for one another. So some guys hang out and pray for a while. Some guys are like, thank you, Lord. Amen. And they're out the door. But it starts at 7.30. Uh, they're going to be uh, looking at various letters in the New Testament. Uh, they're calling it postcards from the New Testament. So put that on your calendar. Come to that. Uh, also, we are doing, starting back up next Sunday, uh, what's calling uh, Culture Sunday. So the first Sunday of the month, we are doing a thing where we look at political issues in the world around us that we don't address on Sunday mornings. Because if I have half an hour to talk to you about something on a Sunday, we're talking about Jesus. We're not talking about politics, we're talking about Jesus, but people have a lot of questions of what's going on in the world, and so we figure once a month on a Sunday, we'd kind of start talking about that, and then on opposite months on that first Sunday, we're going to do theological things, so if you have theological questions, you can bring those with you about anything we're talking about or just a question you might have on your mind. And then the third thing I got is don't forget trivia, September 15th. I, I, you guys, Element, you guys are the worst, okay? Because you guys, like, you'll wait till, like, the week before, and then you sign up, and it's like, oh, no, we went from 10 kids to watch to 50 kids to watch. If you are coming, and you have kids, and you want child care, sign up early so we know so we can get enough people to cover that. If, you, if it's just you and you're like, I don't have a team of 10 people, great, sign up. We will put you on a team with some other people. And even if you're like, no, I'm not that smart, neither are they. You're all going to fit in. It's going to be great. We figure if people hit about 50% of the questions, you're doing really well. Welcome to Ellen if you were new. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, The sermon notes that we are doing, they look like this. Uh, We have these binders outside. You don't have to take a binder, but the binder enables you to put in the extra resources we are using in this series that we're in. Uh, today, our extra resource is this thing about how do you reconcile with other people? When people have hurt you or you have hurt other people, there's some practical steps in there, and that's what the extra resource is today. That's not on the communion tables as normal sermon notes. What is on the tables is this. This also is three-hole punch, so it can go in the binder as well. And on this, like I'm telling you, every week now we're doing these questions where vertical is what is God doing, internal, then what is God now doing? in me based upon what he's doing, and then horizontal, how do I then begin to live that out in the world? How do, how do I live out what God is first doing in me? And then there's some action steps in the bottom of that. So you can grab one of those. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on more and then events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smart device, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, All that goes with today's message, as well as a QR code to go to our Forgive page in case you have missed anything else during this series. I think that's it. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Uh, This is Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. And Jesus says this, Pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us what it means to live in the reality of forgiveness, what it means and what it doesn't mean, to read, be able to read through the scriptures and see what you say about your forgiveness first given to us. 
and what that should result in our lives looking like to your glory, to the joy that we live in as we live out as your ambassadors in this world, in your name, the forgiveness that we have first received. Amen. Have a seat. Right, so if you can't guess, we are doing this series through forgiving and forgiveness because it's something that most people, not just in the Western world, but really in the Western church, we really don't understand. Like the verse I had you stand for, if someone comes to you and hurts you seven times in a day and says, oh, I repent, you must forgive them. We have all these questions, right? But what about and what about and what about? And that's why we keep saying all the weeks of this series, they're meant to go together. And not that if you missed a week, today's not going to make any sense. It will sit on its own, but it will really make a lot more sense because in forgiveness, forgiveness does not mean we bury our head in the sand and we forget that what was done. It means that we many times will seek true justice. Like last week, we talked about how forgiveness is not letting perpetrators off the hook for their abuse. What it wants is to see perpetrators come to know Jesus because that is the only hope any perpetrator ever has to see their sin, their self-deception, and then to begin to change. The gospel, what it does is it presents abusers with an opportunity to come face to face with the reality of their sin and what it does. And so it calls abusers to repent, to side with both God and their victims and condemn the evil they have perpetrated. And so last week we talked about Rachel Den Hollander's story of abuse at the hands of a guy named Larry Nasser, who was the USA Gymnastics team doctor. And we said it was truly repentant abusers who have come to side with God and their victims do not use repentance as an excuse to escape justice or to make demands of their victims. Because if someone comes up to you and says, well, I repented. You got to let me back in your house. You got to let me back in your life. That's manipulation. And that is not true repentance. True repentance involves acknowledging the harm they have done and even the rightness of punishment. In the courtroom, I told you, Rachel Den Hollander was able to say to Larry Nasser, I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. And this is why walking through each of these weeks, they have to go together. Last week was, was pretty heavy if, if you were here. Uh, I know this is like the last, last hurrah before summer's over or the next week, you know, and so there's a lot of people on vacation. I don't know if it was a vacation from what we talked about last week, but a lot of people are on vacation this week. And when we walk through forgiveness, it's difficult because we will only understand what forgiveness is meant to be when we understand our own forgiveness. In the book of Exodus, God calls the Egyptians to release the Israelites from captivity and slavery, and they refuse over and over. God sends warning after warning. He does miracle after miracle, and he is going to bring judgment upon Israel for their oppression and enslavement of human beings. And at the end of this, God will send out this thing called the destroying angel. And the punishment is that the firstborn son, which is the hope and the strength, of these ancient families will die in every household. But in that moment, God directs the Israelites to observe this thing called the Passover. And in the Passover, they take a lamb's blood and they put it on the doorposts and the door frames of their home so that this avenging angel will pass over their homes. It's a way to trust in this blood of the lamb. Hmm, sound like something? Think that's pointing anywhere? Of course it is. But it also reveals something, that the angel, the bearer of wrath on sin and evil, did not only go to the homes of the Egyptians. 
it went also to the homes of the Israelites. And if Egyptians would have trusted in the blood of the lamb, they too could have had this angel pass over. It shows you there is no hierarchy between the good Israelites and the bad Egyptians. God says to Israel, you know, you're oppressed now, but you have oppressed people and you will oppress people in the future. Right now you're worshiping me because I'm revealing myself in all these ways. But you have been involved in idolatry. You will get involved in idolatry again. And if I tonight were to judge you by my righteous standards, you would not pass the test either. This is what is telling us. We are all lost. We are all in need of grace. Paul reminds us, Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, not even one. And what God is pointing towards is the idea of substitution. The idea of substitution is the only way to satisfy justice and love together. The firstborn Hebrew son should have looked at that lamb and said, the only reason I am still alive is because of this lamb. What I want you to do is open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Uh, if you're using a Bible at Element, it's on page 573. And keep your place there when I have you turn somewhere else because we will be coming back pretty close to Luke 22, but, but kind of turn there. What we have to understand is that all sin incurs a debt, and that debt doesn't vanish. It is going to be paid for one way or another. Either someone substitutes themselves for us, or we try to pay that penalty forever, which we can never do because our sins are against an eternal God. And when we understand this, we see when God talks about this Passover, what it's doing is pointing beyond itself. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, it says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What that means is Mary's little lamb or Baba black sheep, it is not the substitute that we need. So where do we look? Hebrews 10.10, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's where we look. Now, the night that Jesus is betrayed, that he is arrested, he celebrates a Passover meal with his disciples. Now, usually the leader of a Passover meal, they will say this, this is the bread of our affliction, like for the people. Our ancestors suffered in the wilderness so we could be free. Now, look at what Jesus says. Go to Luke 22, verse 19. In the middle there, Jesus says, this is what? My body. This is my body. That's what he says, which is given for you. And in other words, he says, this is the bread of my affliction, my affliction. It's my suffering that is going to be the ultimate liberation for you. Jesus was forsaken in our place. He is our substitute. All the way back in the Passover, it is all pointing directly to what Jesus is going to do. Now, keep your place in Luke 22, and I want you to flip over to Mark chapter 11. It's on page 550, if you're using one of the Bibles here, about 20 pages to the left, you'll get there. It's important to understand that we are forgiven on the basis of what God did for us, and only that is going to ever lead us to a place where we begin to forgive others. Forgiveness becomes a response to understanding our own forgiveness. And only by understanding that forgiveness will we as a people start to begin to live in true community, to be restored to one another when we hurt one another. And again, like we talked about last week, there are extreme instances of abuse, but a lot of times that's not what we do to one another. What we tend to do to one another is just little slights and hurts. How do we get past those things? When someone talks about you behind your back or someone stabs you in the back or just something, how do you get past that? Well, forgiveness leads to true community. So today we're going to look at two verses that look like they might contradict one another, but I think actually go hand in hand to show how we forgive and how we begin to reconcile. So Mark chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus says this. 
And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Now, that does not mean that God's forgiveness is merited by ours. It means that to be unforgiving, it shows that we have failed to understand our own forgiveness, that we have failed to understand God's grace. It is not our sadness, it is not our sorrow that brings God's favor. And the sign that we don't understand God's forgiveness and God's mercy is our inability to forgive others. Now, again, remember, forgiveness is not burying it, stick your head in the sand. Forgiveness is letting the weight go so we can be a people who start to live and call for true repentance. Tim Keller writes this, The humility that comes from admitting your lostness and the joy that comes from knowing your acceptance in Christ are simply absent when you don't forgive. Without the humility that sees yourself as equally deserving of condemnation and without the joy of knowing your standing in Christ's love, it's going to be impossible to give up your desire for somebody else to suffer as you have. And so Jesus' point here is if you realize you have not forgiven someone, do it right away. Do it right away. Now, go over to Luke chapter 17. See, that's why I had you keep your place in Luke, because it's pretty close, but it's three pages to the left. You'll find it. Luke 17, 569, if you're using one of the Bibles here. Uh, but Luke 17, verses 3 and 4, this is the verse I had you stand for. Jesus says, Pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, there's two responsibilities that Jesus sets out here. The first one, if someone sins against you, I know we all want to be outraged for other people. If someone sins against you, rebuke them. That word rebuke means to confront. I know you think, but I have the spiritual gift of ignoring things. I put my head in the sand. That's, that's what I want to do, right? That's my gift. No. And, and also doesn't say you correct anything you see anybody doing. He says, if someone sins against you, you, and if they repent, the second responsibility is to forgive. Now, again, you know, reconciliation can only happen with forgiveness, but it doesn't automatically always lead there. Responsibilities to confront and forgive are equally laid upon us. Now, you talk about the reality of that, right? Most people, we're not good at this. We want to choose one or the other. Either I feel like I'm really good at confronting and challenging than forgiving, or on the other side, I'm really ready to forgive and forget than to challenge. And this is why we need the strength of God's Spirit as we listen, as He leads, because none of us could truly do this. Jesus says, if they sin against you seven times in the day, He is not saying this is the reality. He's not saying only when this happens, this is a scenario. What He's saying is that when someone repents, don't make them run through a gauntlet of like all these things and making sure they hurt enough. Don't make it drawn out. Basically, don't forgive slowly or begrudgingly. Jesus shows the goal of forgiveness, especially in the body, is not primarily inner healing or payback. I mean, forgiveness can bring about an inner healing. It can be part of the pursuit of justice, but the ultimate purpose of forgiveness is the restoration of his community. That's why we learn how to forgive one another. Now, again, there's all the issues of abuse that we talked about last week, and I don't think this really entails some of those things. James Edwards writes this, Forgiveness's purpose here is not to humiliate, defeat, or drive out sinners, but to correct and restore them. It's often easier to turn a blind eye to sin in the community. The admonition of fellow believers requires the church to function as a body in the costly work of reconciliation. Why is it costly? 
because if you have to confront and rebuke, sometimes people just be like, I'm done with you, and they write you off. It can be costly. And if you read Luke 17 without Mark 11:25, it can lead you to think that forgiveness is not necessary if someone doesn't repent. However, Mark 11:25 says, forgive if you have anything against anyone. It doesn't say, oh, unless they don't repent. On the other hand, Mark 11:25 without Luke 17 verses 3 and 4 can give the impression that forgiveness is just sticking your head in the sand and just letting everything go. It's completed in an instant, and that's not the case either. And this is why you want to read all of the scriptures together. Jesus does not contradict himself. Forgiveness can have two paths, and sometimes they overlap. Sometimes forgiveness presupposes the repentance on the offender's part, and sometimes not. Interesting thing is in the book of Acts, the first martyr is a guy named Stephen, and he dies praying, Acts 7, verse 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I think it's funny because it's not his call, for one. <laughs> but, but also he prays this while these people are stoning him, while they are killing him, and yet he forgives them. And what these verses show are two things. If you're taking notes, write this down. Attitudinal forgiveness and reconciled forgiveness. Attitudinal forgiveness and reconciled forgiveness. One is inward, attitudinal, and one is outward, reconciled. So Mark 11, forgive them. That means inwardly willing not to avenge yourself. It's an inward forgiveness. Luke 17, forgive them, means to reconcile. That is outward. There is forgiveness that ends up being inward only, and another kind that moves outward to a possible restore relationship. In Matthew 18, 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens, you have gained your brother. See, that's, that's kind of the point to bring them in. Now, you have to also understand when Jesus says this, this is also a principle. If you're going to go to your brother and that person is going to abuse you or hurt you, you would not go alone. You might even have to take the authorities with you. So this is kind of a principle in that, but the purpose was to gain your brother. And so this is the hard part. The, the victim of wrongdoing inwardly forgives, attitudinal, while reconciliation will ultimately depend on the perpetrator recognizing their wrongdoing and if they repent or not. That will lead to reconciliation, inward, outward, inward, outward. They're not really two kinds of forgiveness, but kind of aspects of it. The first must happen. It must happen if we were ever going to be free. And the second may happen, but it's not always possible. Keller writes this, attitudinal forgiveness can occur without reconciliation, but reconciliation cannot happen unless attitudinal forgiveness has already occurred. See, for a, for a victim to be open to reconciling, they must have done some type of forgiveness work in their heart already. And there is some lessons here. Number one is this, Christian forgiveness is never simple, simply individualistic. It's just not. God's concern is for the outer social healing of his community, how we live together. I mean, Jesus will say they will know that you are my followers by how you love one another, how we reconcile, how we walk with each other. Inward attitudinal forgiveness eventually wants to see a repentance on the offender's part. Again, forgiveness is not only about the inner peace of the victim. Not saying that's not important is extremely important, but it's more than that. And every secular model we have of forgiveness totally overlooks this. In Elements Gospel communities, there are times that people who are part of these communities, they become shocked because sometimes there is conflict in these gospel communities. And I got to tell you, when there's conflict, that's perfectly normal. And it's actually also a perfectly great opportunity to practice love and forgiveness and reconciliation. It is not a failure. It is a fundamental aspect of how we begin to live lives together. 
The second thing is Christian forgiveness never undermines the pursuit of justice. So we got to go back and understand that. It always promotes justice. Inward forgiveness changes the attitude of the heart from a desire for the wrongdoer's pain and suffering to a desire for their good. Inward forgiveness goes from hostility to love. Love is willing someone's good, and willing someone's good can be exactly like Rachel Den Hollander on the stand and what she says to Larry Nasser. Love is the essence of granting forgiveness, but love is also at the heart of doing justice. Why would a Christian seek justice? Keller writes this, Injustice grieves the God we love, it mars the creation we love, it harms the people we love, and even harms the wrongdoer, whom we should love and not hate. What is seeking justice? It is to speak the truth in love and not shield people from the consequences of their actions. See how important that is and how much different that is and how we think about forgiveness so often? Moral indignation, even moral outrage may on occasion be a proof of love. It might be love for the victim, love for the church of God, love for truth, love for God and his glory. And not to seek justice at times cannot be evidence of gentleness. It could be evidence of a failure to love. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, the little things that happen because it's true. Moral outrage can easily be a function of our ego. I've seen it online with Maybe a few of you, I don't know. Um, but the desire for revenge against people we don't like, that, that's not what we're looking for. To be morally outraged out of love for God, out of love for his creation, love for people, even love for the offender. That's rare, but that's what's required. So discerning these two aspects of forgiveness, inward and outward, it starts to become crucial to navigate so many situations that frustrate us and all the ways that we need to forgive. What if the offender has broken the law? Well, you know, maybe there's abuse or assault in the workplace. You can forgive that person in your heart, but still insist that they pay the penalty for their criminal action. It doesn't mean letting that go. What if offenders refuse to meet with you or listen to you or they keep trying to attack you? You got to hear this. You are not handcuffed by their actions. You can forgive in your heart and maybe someone does start to repent, but that does not mean you don't have to put boundaries around your life at times. I have seen this over and over with people and their families. It's like someone in the family does something, oh, I'm really sorry, or I repent, and we just feel like, oh, I've got to let you back in. No, you got to build boundaries. If you don't have boundaries around this, this person's never going to learn boundaries. Loving that person may be saying, here's the boundary. You're not allowed around my kids. You're not allowed around my family. You, I will have, go have dinner with you out here, but you're not coming in here. Boundaries, they're okay to have. What if the person who has wronged you is dead? What if, they, what if they're dead? Like maybe abuse from a parent. Again, you're not helpless in that because reconciliation, again, is the most desirable outcome. But if it's not possible, there is a way in forgiveness that we walk through this with Christ. And the burden can begin to come off of us. We don't, want to under, we don't want to be so damaged that we cannot grow. And God gives us the ability to begin to heal when we understand what forgiveness is. David Pallison writes this, Seeing that our forgiveness of others has two interconnected parts helps us navigate the opposite message that one often hears in Christian circles. Some in the church teach, if you forgive from the heart, then you don't need to go to the person. Others teach, unless the other person asks for forgiveness, you don't need to forgive. Each focuses on a half-truth and draws a false conclusion. When you put together both halves of what Jesus did and taught on forgiveness, you get a coherent truth. Inward, outward. They must go together. 
Now, in the book, they start to connect these things with some analogies that Jesus uses. In Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but Jesus says this. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is called the law of retribution or lex talionis. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So inward and outward, there's some directives that Jesus gives on this. Like I told you a few weeks ago, when this law was given to Moses, it is revolutionary because people in that day, inwardly, they wouldn't forgive. Outwardly, they just wanted retribution. It would escalate out of control. It's like uh, you, you hit me, I hit you. I hit you, you cut me. You cut me, I shoot you. I shoot you, yeah, run me over with your car. You run me over with your car, I find you, I strap you down, I play country music at you till your ears bleed and you go insane, right? Eventually, somebody ends up in a hole. It's like the plot of every B movie ever made. This constantly, you see this throughout the scriptures as like these warnings, like Samson, I know, man, people are always like, oh, Samson with the long hair. Oh, he's a judge. He's such a great guy. Samson is a terrible person. I don't know why we're always trying to take these horrible people in the Bible and go, oh, no, no, they're heroes. Samson is a cautionary tale. His whole life is about vengeance. Thousands end up dead. In Judges 15, verse 3, Samson says, this time I have a right. Right for what? A right for revenge. In Judges 15, verse 11, he says, I merely did to them what they did to me. In Judges 15, verse uh, 7, he says, I won't stop until I get, I get my revenge on you. What? Yeah, cautionary tale. You look at the book of uh, Esther. The whole backdrop of the book of Esther is somebody offended somebody else's great granddaddy, and now this guy wants to kill all the Jews. That's the background of the story. How about Romeo and Juliet? You know that one? Okay, Romeo and Juliet. Somewhere, some, ago, some time ago, someone said an airy word to another. That's how the whole thing ends up with these two kids dead. That's how, it's all about revenge. In the ancient world, revenge escalated, and towns were obliterated off of the map. God steps in, and he gives his people a command that put checks and how far you're allowed to go. He tells them, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, meaning the punishment should not exceed the offense. And a lot of commentators, when you read them, they will point out that Jesus is most likely not overturning this law because this law was meant to be a rule of thumb for judges when they looked at legal cases about the limits of restitution. It was not given as a warrant for personal revenge and relationships, but by his time, when Jesus walked the earth, that rule of thumb had just become that. This is a way that people responded to any wrongdoing. And so this is why Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil. That does not mean let evil flourish. What that wording in the Greek actually means is don't try to keep up with someone who is evil. You don't need to do that. And so what he does is says that you overcome evil with good. That's what we do. And he gives four illustrations. Number one, a slap on the right cheek. Again, a couple weeks I talked to you about this, where a slap on the right cheek would be done with the right hand so you're backhanding somebody. That's not about a fight. That's not hurting someone. That is about insulting someone. And so Jesus says when someone insults you, you don't need to insult them back. Turn the other cheek. That doesn't mean let them slap the other one. If they were to slap the other cheek, they do it with a hand like this. And you would only slap an like a, someone who was equal to you this way. And what Jesus is saying is help them to understand that you are not inferior, that you are equal, and don't respond in kind. Don't try to keep up with the evil doer. When incurring a debt, a garment or a shirt could be offered as collateral. Boy, wouldn't that be great today? 
No, okay. Jesus says, if you're sued, rather than being all resentful, how dare you take me? Actually figure out why are we doing this? Why are you so angry? What's taking place there? Even voluntarily saying, here is another garment. It's, it's like my dog. My dog is about nine months old now. And I wish she loved to fetch like my old dog. She doesn't. But what she loves to play is tug of war. And you'd be sitting there. It can be like 8 o'clock at night. She'll go find a rope and just lay it on your lap and go, ah, 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 till you, and you pick it up and just, uh, 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 uh. Jesus says, don't do that. My, my dog is ungodly. Okay? He's <laughs> trying to force me to do all these horrible things. But Jesus said, you don't need to get in a tug of war with everybody. The third thing he talks about is being forced to walk a mile. That could be better translated as conscription. Because by Roman law, uh, a Roman soldier could take a civilian and make them carry all this stuff for the distance of one Roman mile. And what does Jesus say? Carry it too. Carry it too. He says, be helpful. Stop being so spiteful. Even if they are, you don't need to be spiteful. Someone needing a loan is the last one. The Mosaic law commanded the Israelites to loan and give to those in need with a generous spirit. Jesus is not saying, allow evil to have its way. He's saying, don't get in the tug of war. You don't have to try and keep up with them. What we are to do is, while resisting evil, not to target wrongdoers simply to hurt them in order to pay them back, inward, attitudinal. This is a directive that Jesus calls us to, that we are not to respond to wrongdoing with fury, hurt pride, or vengefulness. All that inward. How do we know that? Because Jesus actually goes on from these verses right after this and says, Matthew 5, 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends his rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now Jesus here quotes the book of Leviticus. And the Israelites took this word neighbor to mean only the covenant community of Israel. And so Jesus is reinterpreting their bad interpretation and says, that's not what you read that command to love your neighbor. Jesus will go on. He'll teach this parable of the Good Samaritan that teaches us our neighbor is anybody, is anybody. And then the second thing in this that Jesus says that Christians are to now show love rather than hate. That's the outward. See, there's, there's the outward. It's not the tug of war. It's outward loving people. Jesus is saying that we cannot confine our commitment to the good to our own tribe to our own people, not even the Christian community of believers. We are to open our arms and hearts to the other, those religiously and racially and morally and politically different than us. We love those around us. R.T. France writes that Jesus introduces a concept of undiscriminating love to those who do not love, to love those who do not love you is not offered as a piece of pragmatic wisdom, but as a reflection of the character of God himself who gives a fruitful earth through rain and sun to all people, regardless of the motives character. Normal human interactions in our world are the tug of war. We typically only give love to other people who will love us back. We give affirmation to people we admire whose affirmation that we want, meaning our love relationships are often modeled only on economic relationships. We invest where we're going to make a good return. We will not love others who do not love us back. We will not give affirmation. And Jesus gives us these directives in this. Christians should live lives of love that are visibly different and distinct from the rest of society. Outward, outward. And Christians can do this. Why? Inwardly, we love because he has first loved us. 
That's where it comes from. That's a whole new way of living life. One not based on honor or pride and strength, but, on, but it's on respect and grace and humility and forgiveness. Does the phrase love your enemies mean you can't have a police force? Not at all. Does it mean pacifism? No. But it, I think it does mean warfare in only highly selective situations. And the main question is, is how does this now work itself out in our personal relationships? And today in our Forgive video, I want you to, if you haven't met Susan, uh, this is Susan, and her story kind of reflects this. It's a little bit shocking maybe, uh, but listen all the way through it and see kind of what happens on the backside of this. So this is uh, Susan Hook. Years ago, my husband uh, was unfaithful. You know, it wasn't just that he sinned against God and against me, it was a lot involved. I felt totally broken and shattered, um, crying out to God multiple times. I, sometimes I felt almost literally in the fetal position, crying out to him. And initially having no idea how to handle it, whether I was going to stay in the marriage. Forgiveness was not something that came right to mind initially. I had to ask God to give me the heart to want to forgive. Feeling was I wanted him to hurt the way that I hurt. It was a process for me. I remember I actually journaled about it. I'll do whatever it is that you tell me to do, God, no matter what. I feel like God showed me my own sin and showed me what he had forgiven me for, not in a condemning way. I don't feel like he was, you know, pointing a finger, look what I forgave of you. Knowing that he forgave me for things that hurt him, things, ways that I hurt God, and that he can show me grace, I know that I can, it's, it's him that's allowing me to extend that to my husband in this case and to others. Forgiveness has been brought up many times because triggers would happen. Um, things, something would come up and it would take me to a place of remembering what happened, which could get very dark and ugly at times. And then, to be honest, there were times when I felt like I wanted to take my forgiveness back because I was hurting. Um, and in that time I was withholding love and my heart would become calloused. So I'd have to go to God for that. Deciding to stay was a longer process. Even though I stayed and we were together, I st didn't, still didn't know if I was really going to stay. When I was ready to talk, he always told me that Whenever I needed to talk about things, he was there to listen. If, I, if we needed to go over things, he was there. Um, he wanted to make sure that I knew I had open communication. So I think that definitely helped with our reconciling, um, even though it was difficult. It's been 10 years, but the pain is still in the background um, because the relationship was at one time broken, but it has been renewed. And I give God all the praise and glory for that. I do thank God that we were able to reconcile. So many blessings <clears throat> came out of something so ugly that was meant to destroy, and it didn't. God was able 
to use me to reach my dad. My dad didn't understand why I would even consider forgiving, and I told my parents that I forgave him, and that's where there was a day when my dad actually said, I don't, I don't understand. And that's the very first time that I shared who my God is with my dad. I was able to tell him that I'm able to forgive because I was forgiven. Not right away, actually years, my dad started asking questions. My dad had become sick and not long before he passed, he accepted Christ as his savior and knowing that I'll get to see him again fills me with joy and I have to think not that I would ever wish for this to happen again or to have to go through this pain again, knowing that because I allowed God to give me the heart to show His grace and forgiveness and that brought my dad to Him is amazing. My God is my Heavenly Father. Well, I know I'm His child and He loves me with an everlasting love. In every situation, He's there in my highs and my lows. Loves me so much, He sent His Son to die for me. Now, her story, again, doesn't necessarily need to be your story in that. If you, know, if you are hurt in that same way, it doesn't necessarily mean that you stay in the marriage. It, it doesn't mean that, but that's where God led her. When we show you these forgiveness stories, they're meant to remind us of the goodness of who God is. We're not saying this is what you have to do. I was trying to think of a way to kind of bring all this together. I don't know if this relates, but about five years ago, I told you this uh, story about the Lord of the Rings. Yes, I'm a geek, okay? Uh, there is this thing in the Lord of the Rings about love and grace and, and pity, how they're central to the story. Uh, in the prequel to The Lord of the Rings, there's a thing called The Hobbit. You got this guy, his name is Bilbo Baggins. I know you don't care. But he's in this cave, and he finds this ring of power. He doesn't know it's an evil ring, but he finds this ring of power, and he puts it on his finger. He becomes an invisible. Now, he has to get past this creature whose name is Gollum to get out of this cave. Gollum used to own the ring. So he's got to escape this cave where he's trapped, and Gollum wants to kill Bilbo, but he can't see him. And so Tolkien writes this. He says, he must stab the foul thing, put its eyes out. But then something happens to Bilbo. It says, a sudden understanding, a pity mixed with horror, welled up in Bilbo's heart, a glimpse of endless unmarked days without light or hope. And so what happens is Bilbo gets this pity for Gollum. Gollum's not going to repent, but Bilbo refuses to repay evil for evil, and he repays evil with good, and he lets Gollum live. Now, you fast forward to the Lord of the Rings, and then you have Frodo, who is uh, Bilbo's nephew, and, and he now gets this ring, and they know that it's evil, and they know what it is, and they have to destroy this ring, but Gollum shows up in the midst of this, and he has to keep constantly dealing with Gollum, and he will look at the wizard Gandalf, and he will say, he goes, it's a pity Bilbo didn't kill him, and Gandalf says this, pity, it was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Now, when you look at this, it, this is the reason why Bilbo was never consumed by the evil of the ring. Because he starts off with forgiveness and grace and pity. It was that inward action that led to his outward action. And in the end, Frodo's not strong enough. 
he can't destroy the ring. And through all this, you know, machinations that happen, Gollum ends up with the ring and Gollum ends up destroying the ring. And it is pity and forgiveness and grace that saved the world. Now you don't need to watch 18 hours of a movie, by the way. But <laughs> the man who wrote The Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, he's a Christian. Actually instrumental in bringing C.S. Lewis to know who Christ is. And this is the reason why hope and love and forgiveness saves the world in the story, because it did save the world in Jesus. And so when we want to be brilliant and strong and beautiful, we want other people to see us that way in the end. We are loved and accepted on the basis of God's grace, God's pity towards us, which is why Jesus went to the cross, just like Susan talks about, that we have a forgiveness that we could never earn. And that's the miracle. The God of the universe paid for what separated us from Him. So we must learn to live in that forgiveness, to extend it to others the same way, because only by living in forgiveness will it bring about reconciliation in the midst of His community. We show love to all people because we have first been loved. We don't want to be a people who center our lives first in our hurt or our anger or our pride. We want to first center our lives in God's love for us, which will turn us into a people who look outward from ourselves and begin to live completely different lives in front of society. It starts with God's forgiveness of us that is inward, that is inward, and that leads to an outward reconciled forgiveness in our communities. And as I keep telling you week after week, this is the hard part. This is the hard part. Because taking that and understanding all the nuances of what happens and how bad a hurt is and what it looks like and how you walk through that, that is you and God begin to walk through that together. But it must start in the place of understanding His forgiveness first of us. And this is why we come to communion every week. It's the reminder of God's forgiveness first of us. That's why you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us and you dip it in the wine of the grape juice. As a reminder, it is His life first given for us. He is our Passover lamb that takes away the sin of the world. He is the one we trust in. He is our substitute. And so we trust in him. And that leads to everything else. Now, like last week, I'm going to invite you guys if you need prayer this morning. Uh, last week, there were a lot of you guys who needed prayer. And if all of our prayers are kind of taken up. Please don't run off. Wait. We will get someone to pray with you if you need that this morning. But maybe you're in a place of, I, I get this. I, I want to forgive. I want to let the weight off. But I just don't know what reconciliation would even begin to look like. Well, again, reconciliation takes the other person to a place where they actually have repentance as well. And it's real repentance. And so if you need prayer about what that begins to look like or how to begin to live in that, they would love to be able to, to pray with you. Again, we are, we are a church that is a generous giving community. We don't pass a plate like a lot of other churches. Uh, what we do is we have an offering box on the side of wall. You can give online, but we don't pass it because we want to be a people who naturally respond in generosity because of our generosity to us. And then we, and we do that financially. We do that in love. We do it in grace. We do it with forgiveness and reconciliation. I encourage you to grab the sermon notes. Uh, even if you don't even have a binder, but you want to look through what repentance looks like when someone has hurt you or you hurt somebody else, those are on the extra notes. Grab a set of those and just read through it. You don't have to, have to take a whole binder just to take what is useful this morning for you, but take that and read through it and see what God is calling us into because He is good. He has first forgiven us, so we get to be a forgiving people. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would lead and teach us what it means to be those who live in forgiveness, what it ultimately leads to, that we would understand that you know, forgiveness is first understanding what you have done, 
that leads us to have an outward attitude that centers in your grace. Have us understand that forgiveness does not mean that justice can't take place. But forgiveness is the only way that real justice will take place. It's the only way that real reconciliation can ever begin. And so I ask that we would be those who look to not our inner feelings for hope, but we would look outward towards you and what you have done. And then that would then lead to the inner change in us, which would then lead to an outward life lived in front of others, offering the same grace that we have received. God, we know you do not overlook our sin. You call our sin for what it exactly is. And that means true repentance for us means seeing our sin as it is, but also seeing what you have done to bring us to yourself. So I ask that we would live in that grace that you have brought and that you would be glorified as our lives live in repentance, as we are reconciled to you. And as we then begin to live lives that show that great reconciliation that we received. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen. So we drop these curtains. I just want you to take a moment, maybe during this song, maybe a couple of them, and ask God to reveal to you maybe the places where you are holding on to something. Maybe you're not ready to go and rebuke that other person yet, but maybe you're holding on to something. And that lack of forgiveness is causing you to become harder and harder and harder. Not just towards that person, but towards God. Towards those you're called to love the most. So ask God maybe to begin to reveal that and to soften you, to understand what real forgiveness is. And then, if there is a place that can walk towards reconciliation, ask Him to begin to show you what that looks like. Again, not just letting someone who has hurt you right back in the middle of your life where it ours, but that it can take some time to rebuild what trust looks like. And the trust may never be back to where it was before. And that's okay. But there are places where God leads us to show who He is to the world. And that's going to start by understanding our own forgiveness. So let's begin to live in that. And once you kind of do that hard work, like, I don't want to ask God that question, okay? <laughs> Come and take communion, sing some songs. And we will head out into this world as God's ambassadors, as God's hands and feet, loving because he first loved us. It's where it all starts.